Life has been turned upside down for so many people these past few months. Humanity has had to swallow one big dose of reality. A reminder at how little control that we actually have. COVID-19 has taken our jobs, our physical relationships, and it's been slowly chipping away at our sanity. Each new week in quarantine brings a new shade of depression, anxiety, and stress. So many people are trapped alone, devoid of physical contact, and are starving for human connection. Others, like myself, are locked away with their partners and forced to confront a stress that comes with being confined in a tight space together. One thing that we all have in common is our use of social media, technology, our phones, as a temporary escape from our prison cells. A way to connect with humanity and try to experience and relate to what's happening to the people around us in hopes of finding comfort. It was in this format that we all saw it. A horrible, inhumane video seeped into our homes and dug deep into our minds. We watched a man with no empathy, no regard, no remorse choke the life out of a fellow human being. As we have been so desperately looking for good, this example of how horrible humans can be to each other really sank in. We watched men who have volunteered to act on behalf of public safety, of justice, and peacekeeping ignore a black man's desperate gasp for life. This isn't a new image for us. For over a hundred years, we've seen men and women judged, shackled, and murdered for the color of their skin. This has been the American way since before all of us have been born. But last week, we all watched in horror this devastating footage from our virus scrub prison cells. It sunk in deep into our exhausted, afraid, and anxiety-fueled minds. And then it happened. Something snapped. A seal broke, and it's all boiling over. So many people are rightfully devastated, scared, and fed up with the lack of control that we have had on our lives. How can we still have a police force killing black men and women? How is it that race is still used as a way to categorize control and bloat the wallets of American business? Why is our obsession with violence still the only catalyst for change? Why do we turn, and where are we going to turn for guidance during all of this? Do our leaders have empathy? Do they have options? Do they know how to soothe our fears and comfort our frustrations? Doesn't seem that way. So if not our leaders, then who else? Where can we focus our boiling rage? For those hurt hardest, those without guidance, without patience, and with seemingly no other option, they turn to breaking windows, they throw fireworks, they burn. There are so many humans that feel like this country and this system is built to be against them, that it never listens when they peacefully ask for help. When the same big businesses that, post, uh, that do a post on Instagram that Black Lives Matter are also plotting, gentrifying, and infecting their culture with heart disease. Or that some people reposting pornographic images of violence or hashtagging Black Lives, La Black Lives Matter are the same that would watch a black man closely as he walked through their gated community. We have seen the videos of the hibernating social media influencers emerging from their quarantine prisons like a groundhog seeking spring and defacing public property and tagging storefronts with Black Lives Matter 
and posting for selfies in front of burning cop cars to fuel their dopamine habit for followers, for likes. We watch as hundreds and thousands of people seemingly forget the reason behind our quarantine. They gather in large groups to protest, putting themselves and the people that they engage with all at risk to show support. And we also watch the opportunists that loot and riot. I think it's important to note that there isn't a color association with these opportunists. They come in all colors and shapes and sizes. Some may be jumping through windows with boxes of sneakers and others, corporations, that are spending hundreds and thousands on ads explaining all the wonderful things they do for us while grabbing at every last dime of your unemployment check so that you can stockpile food, supplies, and a piece of that ever-dwindling supply of toilet paper. As we all fuel our own dopamine rush and watch violence porn over and over, or maybe you're like me and fueling mine with this rant, so many of us are asking, what can we actually do to change things? Should I donate to the links that my friends repost? Should I put my life and my family's lives at risk by playing chicken with Corona? Should I build and distribute rage-fueling memes that bully people? What is it that I can do? I've been asking myself the same question, been desperately trying to navigate my emotions, fears, and, emo and opinions. Social media is a very dangerous place these days, and saying the wrong thing, posting the wrong image can lead us further into confusion and emotional distancing. I have intentionally tried to keep this show focused on inspiration and insight. One of the more beautiful side effects of interviewing people is empathy and actual understanding. When two people talk, the walls come down, the preconceived notions fade away, and the mist is lifted, and oftentimes we find a human connection. This is something that not only this show has taught me, but the years of documentary filmmaking and editing has also trained me to do. So I'm sure you noticed that we didn't release our previous scheduled episode yesterday. Uh, not only were we trying to be respectful, but I also like the idea of taking a day off from social media completely, taking a breath and stepping away to let that dopamine rush settle and see if how I was feeling and what I was feeling wasn't just being manipulated and controlled. I asked Liam and I asked myself, what should we do? The answer became abundantly clear. I want to introduce you all to the man who has educated me in the ways of empathy. My guest today has given me the opportunity to see how other people live their lives firsthand. He has granted me access to leading laboratories, operating rooms, and research facilities all over the country. I've been able to capture images of stem cells being split, manipulated, and examined. I've been in an operating room while a team snaked a camera through the veins of a sick man to see the inside of his heart. Today's guest has taken me into prisons, broken homes, tattered neighborhoods in search of answers and understanding. He has given me the opportunity to ask questions, to teach, and most importantly, to understand both sides. I'm proud to introduce our guest today, documentary producer and director Rudy Hippolyte. Rudy and I have been working together for over 20 years, and he has been a story gatherer for years before that. Notice how I called him a story gatherer. 
That's because Rudy doesn't create entertainment. His films aren't cut to be pornographic or manipulative. They are a microscope on humanity. His first film, Push Madison vs. Madison, is an immersive look at a high school basketball team comprised of rival gang members. It examines the importance and focus that school systems have put on sports programs and the effect that they have on the community. His second film, his recent film, is called This Ain't Normal. And it's a deep look into a community that suffers from broken homes, a place where being born on a specific street automatically inducts you into a gang. A world devastated by the American legal system and the business that is imprisoning black men. Today, we are happy to have a conversation with someone who can hopefully inspire you in the same way that he's inspired me. Today, we take you on a trip into the heart of a struggling culture with the hope of understanding. Today, we discuss and empathize. Grab those noise-canceling headphones and come learn with us on the new episode of In Love With The Process. Rudy, my friend, thank you for finally being on the show. Mike, uh, you, you didn't ask. So how could I do no. <laughs> That's talked, a fucking lie. <laughs> you've, you've talked about it, but uh, I appreciate it, man. I, I listen to the show, and it's great, the insights, and you're an inter- incredible interviewer. So oh, stop. it's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, c- come on, man. I, like the years of, of uh, training that I've had and the years yeah. of learning that we both had yes. for, you know, how long have we been working together now? It's been like 20 years, right? You really want? Yeah, it's two, since 2000. Jeez. That's scary, man. God, you're, you're, you're so still old. A young, you're still a young cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, no, I'm experienced. Okay. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> That's very true, man. Uh, the um, <clears throat> For those of you who don't uh, know Rudy, um, I met Rudy years ago. Over 20 years ago. Um, and you hired me to to light uh, like a vinyl siding video. <laughs> yeah, you had to bring that up. Yeah, that <laughs> earlier on, yeah, we're trying to uh, kind of learn the craft and make some money. And mm-hmm. uh, was working with a other documentarian friend of mine, Tim Wright. Uh, mm-hmm. And the grandson of Frank Lloyd Wright, actually. Wow. And uh um, he got this gig and asked me if I knew anyone. And I was so glad to somehow make connections to you, Mike, because from there on in, after that, you know, first day, I just knew we had like a great rapport and I wanted to, to work with you. So that was uh, an interesting uh, project to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. And those of you who work in the business and are listening to the show, it's like one of those jobs that, that you take that you have no idea what it's going to be. And, you know, y- you never know what the benefits of those things are, but here, here it is. The benefit is like, taking these random jobs oftentimes lead you to relationships. Right. That uh, last, <laughs> last until we, our, our beards turn gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely so true. I mean, this business, it, it is about relationships and building that with folks that you, you know, you can work with, that you can trust, that have the skills, and it goes beyond that, right? And, uh, but that's life, right? 
Life is mm -hmm. about relationships building. And as a documentarian, it's a key thing to my being able to do what I do. Mm -hmm. Totally true, man. Totally true. And we'll get into that as we continue down this path. I, uh, so after we did the vinyl sighting video, we, you ended up bringing me in because you were doing for years, we're doing documentaries, um, for, uh, Harvard's alumni department, correct? Right. Yeah, that was, uh, Harvard at home. We had uh, started this new initiative, uh, with online learning and being able to produce, um, you know, content, uh, for the web. And so we were doing a lot of projects around Harvard university and mainly, uh, for alumni. So we started, you know, capturing events and whatever things were happening on campus that would be of interest to alumni who weren't there for the experience. So myself and Mike, you kind of helped lead, you know, helped me hire the crew. And mm -hmm. we went, up, went around and uh, just captured some interesting things that were happening on campus. And again, this was a new initiative. So we were learning about, you know, how do you build an audience on the web and so on. So it was great to have someone, you know, like you with your, um, you know, filmmaking background to be able to do it differently. And uh, I think uh, for the most part, for a project that was supposed to run a, a year, we had a 10-year run at the university. Yeah, no, totally. And I respect the fact that that flattery to the host is going to make it better for you. <laughs> hey, I'm going to throw in that, that uh, sugar anytime I can. <laughs> True documentarian. <laughs> Um, well, one of the things that I liked and, and, uh, one of the things that I really got from our experiences together doing that is that we really got access to so much stuff. And there was a period before I left Boston, I couldn't drive through Cambridge without pointing out a building that I had been into randomly <laughs> filming yeah. and doing stuff. And, and we had access to so many interesting things like the early days of stem cell research, Right. Being able to go in and film that stuff all the way down to, um, you know, different social issues and how uh, professors are bringing things together. I got, I got to spend an afternoon with B.B. King mm. because of that. So uh, it really was an, a, a fascinating uh, sort of lesson in, in the world of documentary stuff and capturing stuff. And, um, and then, you know, as we fast forward a bit, uh, you started to do and produce your own films. Um, and I was lucky enough to be called in on, on two of those. Well, two and a half of those. Um, but uh, how did, let's, let's start with you. Like, how did you get into filmmaking? Where, where was your origins, Rudy? So I got in, you know, in working, uh, I went to, to school, Boston University, uh, mm -hmm. you know, took up... Uh, film and television production. So I always had an interest. And um, then, you know, upon graduating uh, from BU, I, you know, it was tough to break in uh, to media at that time, to broadcast media. So I went the route of uh, community access television and started working in community access, learning the craft, getting my ha hand on the equipment whereas in college it was more a lot of theory, and started uh, teaching people in the community how to use media effectively mm -hmm. and uh, media literacy to have an understanding and then giving them access 
to actually go out and film things that they cared about in their community. And I started, you know, doing production there at the station. Um, again, things in the, uh, in the Cambridge community so that people would be aware of things that were happening, whether document, documentaries or there were events, festivals, and so on. So mm-hmm. being able to always feel like, uh, you know, like I, I was wanted to be within the community for folks, other people to be able to share the power of the medium and, um, and really was happy doing that for a number of years, um, just teaching people and making programs um, there. And again, it was, you know, just to go back for a minute to the Harvard job uh, mm-hmm. when started working there. It was all about access to play things that you wouldn't normally get access to because I work for the university. So folks yeah. from the outside wanting to come in couldn't have, have gotten access or seen what we saw, uh, Mike, in terms of yes. the type of things that we were doing. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, yeah, by your seeing that, you know, indicating that, yeah, we got a chance to experience and film things uh, that normally uh, you wouldn't have had a chance to because of access which is what documentary filmmaking is about. If you can get the access, you can actually get to the root of uh, the subject that you're trying to capture. Yeah, <clears throat> no, totally. It's, it's a fascinating, being exposed to documentaries, honestly, honestly, selfishly, being exposed to documentaries, I decided that I don't want to do them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because because it's, it's kind of a thankless job. And I feel, I always feel... I always feel wrong when you have to manipulate material. And the one thing that your work consistently has had is it's not, there's an extent of manipulation that has to happen in order to create a story and in order to cut things and in order to put things together, but you're not dramatizing. You're not specifically fitting a certain mold. You're not creating these stories uh, in the formula that, you know, is like Tiger King. You know what I mean? Right. Taking taking like serious issues. And and when you're examining that stuff, when you're on location and you're seeing these people and you you're in theory empathetic towards these people, uh, you feel like a real fucking jerk if you're taking that footage and taking the the trust that those individuals have given you and then literally shaping that in order to get a you know, a distribution deal. Right. Um, Yeah. No, it's it's not about exploiting, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about, um, you know, some other documentarians, uh, you know, may go out and, and, you know, the intent is they're trying to do something good, but they need to manipulate the Michael Moores and so on. Yeah. I think I, I follow um, in terms of, you know, the, the Frederick Wiseman and Cinema Verite, kind of observational. So you, mm-hmm. you kind of have the cameras there and allow people to do what they would normally do as much as that can happen with cameras there. Sure. And I think yeah. that's the main thing. My, my whole philosophy is to allow people to tell their own stories. They're the experts in their lives. So any documentary we do, um, I allow people to be the experts. So you won't see, you know, the, the, you know, the academic coming in to speak about something. No, because mm-hmm. these folks are, are the ones who, can speak to, you know, whatever challenges, whatever happens in, in their lives. So I think by, by allowing folks to tell their stories and not even have a narrator, 
you know, we could get somebody who may, you know, others might know to narrate the films, but again, it takes away from the narrative of allowing people to tell their own stories and, and to be the experts. Yeah, it's totally true. And so for, let's talk a little bit about the projects that you, that you've done in the past. And the first one, I think this was the first time that you and I had filmed anything outside of Harvard, um, which was exciting uh, to be a part of because it became more, it became more freeing. I think it was more freeing for you as a filmmaker to be working outside of the institution and right. actually telling a story that, that you believed in. Uh, and it became more freeing for me because then there really wasn't any restrictions and the hunt for great imagery and the hunt for, for personal imagery was on at that point. Um, and the movie that I'm referencing is Push Madison versus Madison. Um, how did you get, how did you originally get interested in, in doing that film? Yeah, well, I had, um, I had worked on a, a sports program with the person who we ended up um, you know, being the main character in Push Madison. And before this, I had done other documentaries, but this, this was the first time kind of, you know, tackling something of this nature that would be a longer process in terms of coverage and so on. But mm -hmm. I knew the coach and uh, I would attend a game sometimes and see some of the challenges he was facing with the young people on the team. Not just the fact that, uh, you know, it was difficult kind of trying to maintain discipline on the court, uh, but also uh, his involvement in their lives off the court and some of the situations that these young people were in um, that would, you know, would, would break your heart in terms of, wow, him needing to make sure that he fed them and uh, that he got them, you know, uh, back home and in situations that, you know, would be difficult for any young person to go back into, but he was kind of a mentor, a father figure. So I kind of saw that and um, felt that it would make for a great documentary uh, the year that they were like the number one uh, high school basketball team in the state of Massachusetts, incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, this would be a great way if I could pull it together um, with the crew and bring everybody on board. So. Um, so that's how, because of the relationship, again, going back to relationships that I had with him, uh, he trusted us to come in and film. And I told him he couldn't dictate to us, you know, when we film, how we film. Mm -hmm. um, but having that type of trust uh, in going into it and access, we were able to go in and, and capture the games, but also capture the locker room stuff and some of the stuff that happened off the court and in the classrooms of Madison Park High School. And um, the stuff that you witnessed with these kids and the interaction with the coach, was was any of this surprising to you or is this stuff that you had seen uh, growing up and stuff that you had witnessed? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Roxbury when we came, you know, I'm originally from Trinidad, West Indies, but came up here when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And lived in in uh, in Roxbury in Boston, um, so one of the predominantly you know black neighborhoods in Boston. So I had you know witnessed some things, obviously growing up, um, and uh, again witnessed uh, the fact that uh, you know 
uh, opportunities were not, you know, available. The educational system was different. So the inequities that that yeah. uh, was very uh, prevalent to somebody like myself. Um, so in in going forward to do this documentary on this basketball team, uh, and having embedded myself before we even brought cameras in, I kind of knew that there were a lot of things happening on the team with the kids. A couple of the kids were on neighborhoods that, that had rival gangs and so on. And I kind of started to see that show up, you know, within the team itself. Mm. And uh, I kind of hoped that they could go all the way and win the state championships. But something in me said that based upon all these other things that were not really basketball related, that uh, things may not turn out uh, the way that the coach or everybody else may have wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, <clears throat> it was fascinating because um, I can only relate to it from when I came in. And for me, it was a, it was an interesting thing because growing up in Boston, right. And so Boston has always been uh, throughout history, been a city that is one, basically the, the uh, police force has been run by like white Irish Catholics Right. Um, and so the city has had a reputation for racism uh, and segregation. Um, and, you know, growing up for I grew up in a time period where they started to instate the MECO program, which right. was when they were busing inner city kids into uh, sub, the uh, suburban schools to try to get a better education and the intermingling of that, which was always interesting. Um, and so. For me, you know, growing up, you were always told to stay away from specific aspects of the city. Stay out of Dorchester, stay out of Roxbury, stay out of the places where there's a lot of shootings and there's a lot of violence. Um, you don't want to be a part of that stuff. And um, when doing this piece with you, I was literally, I was like being parachuted right into it. Um, and the thing that, I loved about it. The thing that I took from it was this strong sense of community that did exist uh, in there. And there's a, there was a lot of bad press because we, you know, media loves to glorify violence because violence sells newspapers or violence sells clicks. Um, but the thing that I found incredibly fascinating, and I remember multiple times on both docks that we did it, you go to a park, you go to a local park and someone would have a barbecue set up. And if that, if that was done in, in, in like Brookline, if that was done in like a wealthy white neighborhood, mm -hmm. the, the parents would call the cops because they would assume that whoever was cooking was a child molester trying to find right. children. Right. Um, and so I was just astounded by um, how supportive uh, elements of that community can totally be. And then I was at the same time astounded by um, the pure sadness in the fact that um, these kids don't have a support system. They don't have a structure uh, and that, you know, they assume that their way out is either become a, a sports uh, star, become a rapper or, um, you know, sell drugs. And for years, that seemed to be the only route out for these kids. Um, so it was interesting actually seeing that stuff firsthand when we were working on this stuff, Rudy, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point, Mike. I mean, I grew up in the neighborhood, so I saw it as very different than, you know, again, uh, Boston. At that time I was growing up, you know, they were dealing with desegregation of the, mm-hmm. the public schools. So there was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of things happening in the city uh, where you couldn't go from one neighborhood to the next. And, um, and yeah, Roxbury was portrayed in a very negative light. But again, mm-hmm. my growing up with families in the neighborhoods, it was there, a real sense of community. And everybody really got along and looked out for each other. So I saw that aspect of it. But I also saw the lack of resources. The, the, um, you know, today we're dealing with the result of systemic racism. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I was witnessing that firsthand, you know, the lack of opportunity, the inequity, the educational systems, you know, being very different. Um, so, again, all of those things were something that I wanted, you know, in any, any film work that I did to be able to reflect on and then hopefully allow people to see folks in a very different light and thereby be able to relate or connect to them. And that's where empathy begins, you know, and we begin to open up our hearts and have a better understanding. Um, So that's, you know, again, that's what I grew up seeing a very different, you know, different black community in Boston. Uh, Very positive, as you said, folks looking out for each other. And there's always, you know, that element, but that's, that's in any, any, yeah. uh, any group, any neighborhood, but, um, you know, and so that, that's the type of films, you know, I wanted to tell and having you, uh, working with you and kind of figuring out, Hey, what's the best way for us to tell the story? Like with push Madison versus Madison, we talked about, you know, what should happen in terms of, you know, camera coverage and so on. And you know, that, we wanted to do verite and you said, Rudy, what about having one camera be kind of far away, kind of voyeuristic as if you're, lo- you're looking in, you know, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. someone from the outside looking in and that really worked, you know, for that project. Um, so that collaboration was really important to propel and tell the stories and then to be able to, you know, you're looking, you're hoping you do a project and you're hoping that maybe it goes beyond you know, just maybe film festivals that it maybe yeah. could be picked up and more people could see it and more people could have an understanding. So all those, you know, all those production elements, lighting, all those things come into play. And just having you, as I said, I'm not just saying this, but just having you as a collaborator, as, you know, cinematographer, almost a co-director sometimes on set was really helpful in really propelling the projects to a higher level. Okay, so, enough, yeah. enough, enough of the sugar, really. <laughs> no, but it's, it's so sugar. true. It's so well, I appreciate true. that. I appreciate yeah. that. And I, I remember when we were having these discussions, and we'll get into the next film, which has a lot of really interesting tech stuff, too, because this is still a yeah. filmmaking podcast. Um, this, the, the thing that I really enjoyed about filming Push was that conversation that we did have where it's like, what if we are have zoom lenses, snap zoom lenses, and we're all over the place and, and trying to get the kind of coverage? And I remember one of the techniques that we employed, which I think was great, uh, is that we wirelessly mic'd up the different coaches. We wirelessly mic'd up different people right. and, and fed those feeds to me. So while I was doing B-roll or while I was doing stuff, 
I could literally hear drama that was happening across the room and just snap zoom from a distance into a close-up on the drama that was happening. And the people that were uh, having this conversation had no clue that they were uh, being documented. So you were getting it real and you were actually seeing what happened from it. And of course, they have an understanding that they're going to be documented because they're wirelessly labbed and they have that on. But I think the benefit of having that distance, uh, because years of doing it, as soon as you bring in a camera, as soon as you bring in more than one person to have a conversation, that conversation is being slanted, no matter what. Right. It's it's like people are going to think about what they're doing. Um, You know, kids can't do uh take a, a selfie and post it without taking like 40 selfies and choosing which one it is like once a camera is introduced to anything um it's swaying the way it is and so i think that distance that we got really allowed for us to, to especially with the coaches remember the coaches yeah. the footage of the coaches yeah oh my god these the, the the coaches for these teams get so intense and the away team coach just freaking the fuck out on these kids yeah, and yeah. and it being such an important element of their stuff. And then uh, one of the things that, that I definitely saw was the effect that the intensity of these sports programs and the, like it, it's a positive uh, thing for kids that need some sort of structure in their life. But then there's also this driven sort of focus on these things that, if you have a good sports team, you bring more money into the school. And so that becomes a priority. And, and then, you know, these kids that are poached and hunted like, you know, racing dogs by giant corporations. And they're told that the only way that they to get out is by playing on these teams. And then the money that's made off the backs of these kids. Uh, it, it was just kind of like an eye-opening sports thing for me, I think. Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and again, because we're independent filmmakers we didn't have the budget to have multiple cameras running all over the place so that was the other challenge um as you mentioned and being able to figure out where you know where do i need to be when there's a full auditorium with people um and the game is going on and you're trying to capture the game but you're also trying to capture the atmosphere and uh you're just you know being able to tap into able to hear where something may be happening was uh was a key thing because it is challenging coming in with a small budget and trying to capture something like that um it is it yeah is and our main character coach dennis wilson yeah <laughs> uh, coach <laughs> yeah it, it's a lot to to keep up with him um, oh my god he's such a he's such a he's such a strong lead because <laughs> he's got that commanding voice He's got like the most commanding voice. It's almost like a military voice. He's <laughs> one of the friendliest individuals. Uh, I don't know. Like I had to follow this guy around with a camera on my shoulder and he would not stop running. Like there was <laughs> never a point in time that he would stop. I would finish the days just coated in sweat. <laughs> just trying, <laughs> trying to keep this guy in focus. <laughs> Incredible energy. Yeah. Incredible energy. But just a good person and just a longstanding, you know, um, one of those heroes of the community who's given everything to young people uh, in the programs that he's been involved in and uh, as a history teacher and high school and football basketball coach, just giving everything. And uh, that's why he made for such an inter- interesting person to do a documentary on. And, and I guess you could do a series on somebody like that. Oh, but- for sure. <laughs> 
For sure. And then, you know, the sad part is that he is such a positive person so that if you were to do a series on something like that, and this is a cynical Michael coming out. <laughs> if you were to do a series on something like that, it wouldn't get half the traffic that Tiger King gets because yeah. we're so we're so goddamn obsessed with, you know, tearing people down and violence and, and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, it's kind of sad that no matter how good of a job we did on that piece, um, it would never outdo Tiger King. <laughs> yeah. But but you have to stick to your principles and hope that it gets to enough people. You know, it For may sure. not get to as wide an audience as a Tiger King, but I mean, your hope is it gets to folks that can actually, um, you know, uh, can be, you know, moved to action, as I say, to do something. Um, and in that film, you really saw uh, the challenges that these coaches and teachers deal with in the inner city because they don't have equitable, you know, resources. Yeah. And, uh, and the kids don't have that, didn't have that at home. So, um, you know, if you're leaving home without breakfast and the high school is the only place that you can get it, you know, is that is that uh, fair to that young person who's trying to get an education. So hopefully some of that comes out and people uh, um, feel in the current film, hopefully uh, we, we were able to reflect that. Um, but I think folks who saw that, whether at festivals or they went on for you know, a national um, run on broadcast TV, on ESPN Classic, on... Uh, on PBS and uh, on Magic Johnson's Aspire Network. So it was great to have it go national and have so many people uh, see that film. Okay, guys. Uh, now is that time. It's time for me to break the program. Uh, well, actually, this is where I would normally break the program to do ad reads. But I feel like today's episode is an ad-free episode. Um, I do not want to come off as seeming like I'm taking advantage of the situation in order to make money for the show. So I'm sorry to the sponsors, but no ad reads today for you guys. Uh, instead, I wanted to hang out with Liam and uh, talk about some resources, some stuff that he's found online um, that may help you guys find some purpose, find something to do. So what do you got for us, Liam? Well, Going through social media, I, I found a bunch of different posts that were saying maybe one or two. Some said like five great social justice organizations to support. But then I found this article um, that someone posted, which was 15 social justice organizations to support right now by town and country. And it had every one of the um, different smaller batches of uh, opportunities and organizations. So I was like, I'm just going to send one link and uh, post that in the description. And if anybody wants to donate, um, go to that link. And there are a bunch of options there. The first one, of course, is Black Lives Matter. Uh, mm -hmm. it just, you know, that's obviously it was it, Black Lives Matter was found in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder back in 2013. Everybody's seeing the hashtags now. Uh, that That's the first one and, and seems to be the most obvious one. The second mm -hmm. one is the George Floyd Memorial Fund. Again, very obvious, and it's set up here. Uh, it, this fund raises money to directly support George's family with costs related to his death, including funeral and burial expenses. Now, at this point, there are a bunch of other ones uh, in this uh, in, in this article. One that I actually personally 
really support is uh, the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And I just think the ACLU is a f- fantastic organization. I've supported them in the past. Uh, they are huge, and specifically when going up against serious legal battles uh, in this country. They're just, they are one of, if not the most important organization to uh, make sure that civil rights are moving forward in, in the United States. Uh, there are a bunch of other ones in here. Um, and again, I'm not going to just keep reading the article. I really recommend going down, clicking on the link and checking it out for yourself. But most importantly, and this is one that I can't do the research on because I don't know where everybody is who's listening to this, but there are local resources wherever you're at. And I'm sure somebody is posting on social media about where to help locally. Or if there's a uh, protest that's going on locally, look who's supporting that protest or organizing that protest. I'm sure they would Mm -hmm. have some sort of link set up there. And if you want to help out in your community, that's where you look. Mm -hmm. And remember, you know, as we push forward through this and as, as the flame dulls, because, you know, as we've seen with all the different social, uh, situations that we've been in this year, it burns really bright for a period of time and then it gets quiet again. Um, you gotta really, if you really give a shit, you have to dig deep and look into the things that actually will change things. Look into the programs that your city is doing. Look into the programs that your state is doing. Look into the programs that support people and help people and teach people and teach people to learn. So I think that's good stuff, Liam. I really do. Um, Okay, well, that's it. I promised. No ads. We're going right back into it with Rudy. I'm just always fascinated with conversation. I'm always fascinated with with you know having food with people sitting around and, and talking shop and talking re- real life. Um, and from the outside, in our education system and in our system in general, you always hear like these. You always hear these words that kind of glaze things over, like resources and uh, you know support and you know systemic. And they mm-hmm. use they use these words that really don't connect. These aren't words that I would use at a barbecue. These aren't words that I would mm-hmm. use in our conversation. And so I think the thing that I was really excited about and the thing that I'm grateful for is that I was actually able to connect with these folks on the level that I connect with anybody else and to hear their stories and understand that what's happening to these kids is the same thing that happens to white kids. It's the same thing that happens to kids that come from money. Yes. Yeah. They're, all, they're all hitting their uh, uh, adolescence. They're hitting their preteens. They're hitting their teens. They're going through the same emotional turmoil. It doesn't matter what color your fucking skin is. You know, we're all going through the same thing. And the difference, the huge difference between my life and their life was that when I started to yell and scream and when I started to throw things around, uh, my, my parents brought me back into the home. They exactly. brought me into the home. They shut me up. They taught me a lesson. And I didn't do things on a grand scale publicly that would affect my life um, for years to come. And watching these kids that didn't have that home or didn't have that structure or didn't have that support system to bring them back in, um, and watching them play out in their front, in their living room, which was their 
their street, in their yards, out publicly, um, was just heartbreaking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, no, that was, um, I mean, the catalyst to that was, as I mentioned, in Push Madison versus Madison, we had two young men who were from rival gang neighborhoods. So that was the impetus for thinking, oh, you know, I had grown up in the neighborhood that I did with our, you know, neighborhood was, had a, a gang conflict with other neighborhoods. And so I had grown up a, around these young men who were involved in gang activity. And they were like regular young men, like any other young man. But again, uh, in, you know, fast forward to when we started working on the documentary, I felt like there's a different story to this than what you see in the news. When you hear about a, a gang member uh, perpetrating a crime or doing something to another gang member, you see it on the news and you kind of say, well, you know, they're, you know, they're involved in gangs, they're not good people, whatever. We don't care about them. But mm -hmm. I saw something very different. And it, to me, it was like, okay, I know what led them to do this. And we need to explore that. And I'm not sure if I can get them to talk about it. Uh, but why not, you know, try to connect with an organization that's working with them. And so myself uh, and Coach, Coach Wilson uh, went and uh, connected to Street Save Boston, and they had street workers and social workers working with these young people. So we got a chance before we brought cameras in. Again, I got a chance to hang out with the street workers, and then they took me out to meet some of the young men whose stories they thought we should really try to, to, uh, to tell, to portray. And uh, so I saw the same thing. Even though they were involved in activity, they didn't want to do it. And there were reasons that kind of led them down that path. But again, like any you know, fraternity, I guess, they saw each other as brothers, you know, and mm -hmm. they, they found solace in each other as like a protection from their lives, the dysfunction in their, their life or their community. Um, Totally, totally. Yeah. And I, th I think that when people, I also, I just want to break down a lot of like the preconceived notions that folks have when they hear specific terms. So when people hear social workers or street workers, I think it's important that you understand that, that the main function for a lot of these guys and, and women that do it is to literally be there for these kids because no one else is. Yes. And, and, and by that, I mean, as simple as uh, taking a kid to to get an eye appointment to get glasses, like on at the simplest level of helping somebody fill out a form to uh, apply for a college or helping somebody fill out a form to apply for a driver's license, literally just being there to do these things. And it's uh, in a community in which there needs to be assistance, there needs to be help at this level because. Uh, so many of their fathers have either been murdered or imprisoned or have been fighting amongst each other or uh, live in a community in which um, uh, you are have children at such a young age, you have children when you are children. Right. And you don't understand the full responsibility that's involved with that. Um, and so I just want to make sure that the, the, the people listening understand that, the, that these people... 
that are social workers, they're not just, they're not out there like putting their hands between two gangs and making sure that the gangs don't shoot each other. They're, they're literally going and being uncles and father figures to yes. these people, you know? Yeah. A lot. And, uh, a lot of the folks working with these young people to maybe try to, to fill whatever need they have and in the hopes of maybe beginning to turn their lives around. Uh, a lot of these folks may have been, you know, gang members themselves, may have mm-hmm. spent some time incarcerated, but they can understand what these young people are going through and can connect to them. So, as you said, it could be, uh, and then knowing that, hey, here's this someone who's here for me. I don't have that in my life. So finally, there's somebody. And even if I mess up, they'll still be there. And that's important to being able to bring about change in anyone. Because these, mm-hmm. these young people are coming from situations where there's no one they can really rely or trust on other than their, their, you know, the other members of their crew. And so something as simple as getting an ID, as you alluded to, is huge because most of them, uh, if they spend some time uh, in, you know, incarcerated and they come out, they basically stay on the underground. So the identity, you know, that's something that they want to keep, um, you know, secret. So when they're trying to come back into society, now we know you need to have at least an ID to be Mm -hmm. able to think about doing anything. And so it's a big deal when they finally get that ID. Wow, I'm actually now a member of society. I can actually do something. I don't need to to be in the underground and to hide anymore. That's huge. It's huge. I think a lot of people just don't really, because, you know, you're a kid and you, you're in a situation that's a great situation or even a decent situation. And you're like, I want to go get my driver's permit and go get my driver's license. You're not necessarily thinking that having some sort of identification on you is a, is a negative. Right. Uh, and so fast forward to, I mean, how many dumbass decisions did I fucking make when I was 13, yeah. 14, 15 years yeah. old? Dumbass decisions. And so being in a situation where I had people around me and mentors around me that were like, look, you can, you can screw up, but don't do it on an epic scale. Don't do it at a level that's going to really affect you. Um, I, yeah, something that affects you for the rest of your life. You know, once you get on that trajectory, yeah. uh, let's say you don't have the parents or the aunt or the uncle or the folks in your neighborhood that can offer that advice. Uh, and once you get into that system, that's it. Especially if uh, you're, you know, a young person of color, forget it. Yes, 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 of course. Of course, because then you're examining, then you start to examine this economically. And then you start to look at the economics behind it. And you start to look at, uh, you know, when a new mayor gets elected or a new governor is in office or they're up for re-election uh, and they need to uh, have a campaign to, to campaign on. And they turn to their police chief and say, we need to crack down on crime. Right. You need to make some arrests. I don't care how you do it. Go do it. And the simplest and easiest way to do so is to go into those communities that don't necessarily have any other options or don't think they have options or the guidance to know that they have other options that are there doing things illegally. And it's, it's literally like picking apples from a tree. You, you're just literally going in and doing the fastest, easiest way 
to show quote unquote improvement on paper. Yeah, and, and what population that uh, folks wouldn't really care about if, if there's over policing or or anything like that? These young people, because you know, you've already you know been caught being involved in some type of gang activity. You've already you know spent uh, some time in, in juvenile detention or what have you. So once you come out, you're easy targets for these the police, and they know nobody's going to say, "Hey, you know, there's no cameras. Nobody's going to say you shouldn't be doing this to these young people. You're breaking, you know, their uh, their civil rights because mm-hmm. you know who cares about them? Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And at at that point, who 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 cares about them? And if yeah. there if there isn't <sighs> If there isn't this, if there isn't mentors in place, if there aren't people to help these kids and and put them on the right path, I remember, I remember graphically, we were shooting uh, for your film. This ain't normal, and that's the latest film that we're talking about. The one where we essentially went and embedded in with a few of the different gangs in Boston, because mm-hmm. um, Boston itself. I always get the number wrong. How many gangs are in the city? It's like 120 gangs or something like that. Yeah, it's like like 150. And they're just right on top of each other from street to street. So folks who live in Boston and, you know, maybe right next to a gang and have no idea, you know, folks in, you know, living in, you know, middle income, (laughs) affluent, you know, situations have no idea there's a gang two streets over. Not even that, dude. Even people that live in the upper, like you get on a south end or like the south end, which is the most expensive place to live in the city, and you you go two blocks. And they're right there. Two blocks. for some reason, it doesn't filter over. I don't get it, man. I don't get it. And and the thing that was fascinating about us is that uh, we got to go, or about the experience, we got to go and interview this group. And I remember we did a big shot. I know you know this shot. We did a big shot with a bunch of gang members, a bunch of kids, kids, a bunch of kids standing around. Um, and there was that older guy. Remember the guy that had got out of prison? He was probably in his 30s. Right. And you were asking them questions. And you were asking them about um, what they thought their future holds. Essentially, we were talking about what their options and what they think their options were. And we're talking to young, young children. We're talking to like 13, like really young kids. And these kids go to speak. And before they can really talk about anything, the older guy is like, you have no choices. You're fucked. You have nothing. Like everybody's out to get you. You got to do this. You have no choice but to have a life of crime. You have no choice to do any of this stuff because you're screwed with it. And you... It was so difficult. You, you literally wanted to just take him out of the equation because he was a destructive role model. You wanted to take him out of that equation and just say, you do have opportunity. And if you have a decent business plan, there are banks owned by black people in this neighborhood. There are places that you can go to actually establish what it is that you need to establish. Um, I remember just having my heart broken because of that, that guy that was in that scenario, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, that's the reality, you know, of, uh, you know, you know, what is out there for them. And that's why it's so difficult for them, you know, to think that they could get out of it. They definitely don't want to have their younger siblings get into it because none of them want to be involved 
you know, and to be treated the way they're treated and to have the life of constantly being on the siege, constantly looking over your shoulder because there might be somebody coming to get you. And it's, it's difficult to get out of that. I mean, it's possible. It's complicated. And that's what, you know, hopefully the film shows that, uh, you know, that there are folks out there, there are programs out there. There's a way to do it. Um, uh, it's not easy, but it's doable. And there are many heroes out there trying to help these young people to turn their, their lives around. And that's, I think, that's one of the things. We kind of give the true picture of what it's like, uh, you know, to be a young person growing up the way they did, what got them into the gangs and why they're in the gangs, but also uh, how, how, you know, solutions, what type of things do we, can we do uh, as a society to, to, uh, to break that cycle. Uh, these young people need mental health counseling. You can't just find them a job. You got to deal with the fact of the life that they've led and the possible PTSD that they have. Uh, mm-hmm. So you got to address mental health counseling. You know, there's jobs, there's education. Uh, there's getting a, a life, you know, as we said, getting an ID down mm-hmm. to something as simple as that, that we take other people take for granted. Um, so I think in that case, they were trying to give them the reality. But um, I think overall, I think there were other people in their lives trying to show them that there's a way out um, and, uh, you know, we'll help you and we'll be there for you. Even if you falter, will we still be there for you to pick you up? Yeah. And I, I, I think it's great that you're, that you're doing this uh kind of filmmaking Rudy and I think it's great that your pieces don't um glorify the or continue to promote what we want right the the entertainment to be which is you know violence and everything else and and when when I to to bring this current when I see people going in and I see kids going in and throwing bricks or lighting cars on fire when I see certain elements of kids, i.e. like the kids from the neighborhoods for real mm-hmm. and, and not the social media, you know, outside white kids coming in and doing that shit for likes. Um, but when I see the actual people doing it, I sit there and I cannot help but think about the stuff that we've experienced and, and, and cannot help but think that that person doesn't have guidance, doesn't have someone there telling them like, this is probably not a good idea. And I think that from the outset, if you're looking at this footage at home or you're watching this on television and you're like, these are just criminals and these are just evil people that are running around and stealing and taking Mm -hmm. advantage of the system, you got to understand that it's within their DNA at this point uh, to have to take advantage of stuff because they have no other way of doing it. And so to... I think you just need a little bit of empathy. And when you see people going in and doing stuff, you can tell immediately when you're looking at them, whether it's desperation or whether it's something else. Yeah. I think it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. There are two sides to that coin, right? So, um, so for these young people and what they've had to encounter in growing up and the things that they, they don't have in their lives. And, you know, you talked about having two parents, but it's so many things that are against them. Any one of us put in that position, <laughs> we would be following the same path or worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's number one. And I think that's what you get to see 
when you hear them tell, telling their stories and what they have had to go through growing up, it would break your heart and you would have an understanding, wow, this is why you know they've made the, the, the choices that they've had to make to survive. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it, when you see you know, what's happening now with, um, with George uh, uh, Floyd and, you know, what was perpetrated about, you know, against, you know, the, the, what the police did to him, the, the murder. And mm-hmm. then these young people see that and they say, well, the law isn't even, you know, th- there isn't any justice in the folks who are supposed to be carrying, it, carrying out the law. So why should we stay? Well, why should we adhere to those same laws, you know? And it, it's, mm-hmm. it's tough for them, as I see it, to, you know, the vast majority of folks, including myself, out there protesting. We're out there to, you know, to lend voice to the issue and to say this is enough. We have to find a way. This is way too much. And uh, to those young people, they're out there saying, you know, if this could happen to that person, uh, you know, who is, you know, law-abiding and they see examples after examples after examples of the same thing happening they're just gonna say hey you know i don't care i could do that i can go in and loot because you know there's no law here you know um so that's the other side of the coin yeah yeah no and it's it's valid it's totally valid uh, side of it and when you're looking at when you're looking at how important, you know, this moment is because essentially there's no escaping it, which I think is the most important aspect yeah. of it is that, that you can't escape it right now. And because of the the setting, because of the fact that we're all trapped, there isn't much to distract us. We can't mm-hmm. go on with our regular right. lives because it's all a part of it. Um, it's a, it's a powerful time and it's my hope that you know once we get past igniting the flame and igniting the fire then we're actually examining the true the true steps like the the boring shit like the unsexy stuff mm-hmm. the stuff that you don't post about on Instagram the stuff that is really difficult to do how do you act, like how do you make change and i think a big part of that is being careful on how you demonize people, whether you're demonizing right. gangs or whether you're demonizing police. And I think that it's important to understand and ask questions and to examine how the political system works and examine uh, the fact that uh, police officers are blue-collar workers. They're essentially custodians with power. Mm-hmm. And so... You need to actually get beyond the badge, get beyond that, and get to the source of it and go like, huh, was all these crackdowns to help a fucking mayor get elected again? You know, was the consistent push and uh, um, frustration and arresting in this neighborhood so that a company, our our, um, real estate company, could come in and gentrify and, and develop that area? Yeah. Uh. Like, really dig beyond the fights that we so often are clouded by, which is like, you're a man, I'm a woman, we have a beef, you're black, I'm white, we have a beef. I'm always concerned that 
we're so on pins and needles with that that we can be so easily manipulated by the true vandals, by the true looters, which are these companies and these these people in power that are making ass loads of money off of it. Yeah. I mean, well, you're right. And that's the reality of, you know, the American system and the inequity therein. You know, the folks who we should be pointing to as the, you know, the, the true folks on welfare and who were taking the money, you know, the, the um, you know, you look at some of these huge companies and what they do. And that's, that's the real, you know, where the real money is going, where the real welfare is happening. And, yeah. uh, you know, trying to do this whole divide and counter, uh, di- you know, divide and, and, conquer. Um, and conquer is all, you know, perpetrated to be able to keep, you know, keep, to, to keep that part of it from being exposed. And, um, you know, hopefully we're at a pivotal moment to be able to, to be able to see that clearly for what it is and to be able to, you know, to be able to dissect and break down, as you said, all of the above that contributes to, um, to what, you know, to the place we're at now. And I, I just want to make sure that what we do on this show and what we talk about on this show isn't here to enrage. I'm not about, we don't have cans of gasoline and I'm not trying to throw gasoline right. on a fire. Like it's, it's, I think it's more important to me that as always with this show, I've always been trying to pull the veil on our industry and our business and how things actually work and get past what is sold to us, get past what is advertised to us, get past social media mm-hmm. and get to the core elements of what's actually happening here. And I think that so many people right now are, are looking for something to do. I have no idea what to do. Should I repost? Should I be reposting Black Lives Matter? Should I be donating uh, money to different charities? Should I be doing different things? Like, what is your suggestion, Rudy? What do you think? Well, I think until, you know, we can recognize as a society, you know, that this, the system is broken, right? And, um, you know, the system is really geared towards, you know, those in power, you know, those who have money. And, uh, you know, I know we use this term, but the system is built on systemic, you know, racism. There are some who deem themselves better than others. And mm-hmm. I think the only way to be able to deal with that first is to recognize it, but also in my filmmaking to be able to show how much we have in common how much we can relate to each other. So when you, when you see beyond just the surface of, you know, somebody's life and what has brought them to do the things that you're doing, then the person looking at that who may not have that experience at all in their life can connect to something that they see, whether they see, you know, as a mother or whether they see as a, a sibling or, you know, what have you they can see that person as another person and be able to relate to that. And then I think once we begin to see that, we begin to kind of figure out, oh, have empathy and then begin to figure out a way to work together. So that's, you know, I think that's one of the things, recognizing it for what it is and begin to see each other, that we share the same interests, 
we we're much more uh, have you know much more similar in many ways than we think, and uh, and just in, in terms of you know I may come from a different background like you, Mike, but we're mm-hmm. such good friends and such good collaborators. Because oh, I, hate your gu- I hate your guts. <laughs> <laughs> because we've been able to let each other in, right? And yeah, be able yeah. to see that. And I think that goes a long way to being able to, to get to some of these issues. Just yeah. being able to relate and then have empathy. It, it wasn't hard for us to relate. Right. Honestly, dude. I think that you and I connected pretty early on. Yeah. And it's... I think it's because of that empathy and it's not something that I, you know, it's not some sort of superhero pill that I take and it's not something that I was born with. Um, it's something that was, that was taught to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it was taught to me not only by my parents, but by the people that I respected and by the people that shaped my life was the sense of empathy. And the thing that always, I think this is why I'm a bad business person is because I have empathy. Mm. And the thing that drives me crazy about being in business and something for years when I was trying to run a production company, I would consistently be talking to people that I could sit down and have beers and connect on life and do all sorts of stuff with. And then they would turn to me and go, well, don't take this personally. This is just business. Yeah. And, and that slogan is, is, is ingrained into anybody that goes to business school that is ingrained into anybody that uh, wants to get ahead. Don't take this personally. This is just business. And as you start to get bigger with it, and you start to get to the point where businesses want to be categorized as as individuals, uh, these individuals have zero empathy. Yeah. Yeah, well... Go ahead, Rudy, I'm sorry. No, no, that's... uh, Yeah, I mean, that whole aspect of... um, you know, the business end of things. I mean, we're both in this because we're passionate, you know, mm-hmm. about film and about the stories and about sharing those stories, right? Mm-hmm. And usually that's not connected to money or business or what have you. Uh, we'd love that to be the end result, but that's not why we do this and wh- why we get into doing it, especially mm-hmm. for me in terms of documentaries, um, yeah. you know. Uh, but the business aspect is something that I really don't, uh, you know, think about until the pro- projects are done and then try to figure out, okay, how can this be marketed so I can get it out there so as many people can see it as possible. So I'm a terrible businessman <laughs> in that <laughs> respect. I'm getting better, trying to, you know, getting a better understanding and making little compromises that uh you know on that end but nothing that you know that in where i feel like i'm in some way um you know uh challenging you know my integrity or the things that i believe in but yeah some folks are business minded and that's how they think and it's tough to relate to that and i feel sad for folks like that too well and it's just it's dangerous so like I was just talking about it on an episode that hasn't come out yet with another guest. Um, but coronavirus and, and COVID was an interesting time for us because suddenly you're sitting here and everybody's trapped and there isn't money coming in and uh, businesses are going out of business. Um, and then you start to get, I was getting, and I'm sure you were too, emails from like 
plug-in manufacturers, rental companies, all these yeah. different places that were writing to me as if they were my friend. Yeah. As as if they were an individual. Hell, look at the post that happened last night uh, from like Lyft and the ads that we see consistently on television from Amazon. We're doing great things. We're a great thing. It's like you're a fucking business. Yeah. Stop pretending like you're a person. Stop pretending like you're my friend. Stop pretending like you care more about this shit than you do making cash. And it's just incredibly destructive. And it's proven itself with the, with the goddamn toilet paper and, um, yeah. And uh paper towel crisis. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's funny but it's not. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah, for me I'm getting stuff from film festivals that before <laughs> I didn't really get because now they have to figure out how can we do this differently where yeah. folks can physically gather, you know, and they want to get your content. <laughs> And and your cash. Yes, yes. <laughs> and your cash. Yeah, but uh, fortunately, I have distribution for this ain't normal, which I shared with you recently. So that's really cool to know that it's going to get out there, um, you know, nationally you, I, and internationally. Are you allowed to give specifics? Can we tell how that's going to go out? Yeah, yeah. Well, we actually, as of a week ago, I could actually say that we have a distributor and the film This Ain't Normal is going to get uh, released on a bunch of platforms on June 12th, uh, so which is not this Friday, next, next, uh, next Friday. And it's going to be just a, an incredible situation with the distributor, uh, who is uh, it's Freestyle Digital Media, which is owned by uh, TV producer Byron Allen with Entertainment mm-hmm. Studios. So they have huge connections. They love the film. So... It's going to be out there on all the VOD platforms, you know, direct, you know, satellite TV, direct TV, iTunes, Xbox, Amazon, Google Play, Hoopla, Dish, Voodoo. So it's just a great place for an independent filmmaker to be uh, when you're competing against all, you know, the studios and in bigger independents to be able to, again, have another film that could go uh, not just national but also you know canada the caribbean many different places so it's good it's a good place to be to finally feel like yeah um i'll you know i can get the film out to folks who can maybe uh you know feel like after watching the film they'll be entertained which is the main thing i think uh i think folks get but also they can uh see something that they may not have you know ordinarily uh, been exposed to and maybe you know that empathy comes in and that connection and being able to relate and uh you know again uh that's all i can hope for and then maybe do something to help these young people to address the situation that they're in well i mean i'm gonna say it too rudy i i really want to see success come your way because i know of the projects and the ideas that you have that uh, you con- continue to want to make, and I think that your um, your your style of filmmaking, I think that your ethics as a filmmaker are something to be admired. And there's a reason why, dude. I I mean, I gave up being a cinematographer years ago. 
I know. Uh, and, and you're you're the only guy that can drag my ass out of bed <laughs> and put a camera on my shoulder um, because the experiences feel legitimate. Um, the relationships are real, and the um, access that you've had has been incredibly uh, inspiring and life-changing for me. And it's it's always difficult because I'll get in a conversation with a bunch of people that think they fucking know everything. Mm. And so you get in a conversation where it's like, I read the statistics and I was looking at this and I looked at that and I don't know how to say it other than like, I've seen it. We've been there. Right. You might not be as empath empathetic as you think you are. Like do yourself a favor and instead of reading about it, experience it and instead of um talking about how we're not supposed to be afraid physically don't be afraid right and I, I especially if you're living in boston i think a lot of people have the preconceived notion and this is this leads into the systemic racism a lot of people have this notion that if you go to dorchester and roxbury uh, a young black kid is going to hold you up and steal your money right and uh shoot you on the street and the one thing that we learned when we were doing this ain't normal is that the only real threat that we had was that when we were gathering these kids that weren't normally in one space, a rival gang may come by and try to shoot them. Exactly. And, and we experience what others experience who may go into those neighborhoods. People look out for you. And during mm -hmm. this whole process, when we were going around, Folks, even the young people were looking out for us and saying, you know, let's not do the interview here. Let's do it over here. And not because they were looking out for their own uh, interests. They were looking out for our interests because they felt genuinely we were trying to do something different. We weren't mm -hmm. trying to exploit. Uh, we were actually trying to give voice to their experiences. Um, so again, it's, it's not, as you said, people need to either experience it or be able to see something that gives them that type of insight. Mm -hmm. Yep. Totally. And, and the thing that I, the thing that I think immediately broke down all that, all that shit that you're told, you know, coming from like, you know, a middle-class white neighborhood. I think the thing that immediately broke that down was just the, the human curiosity and the general curiosity that a lot of the kids that we were interacting with had. And how these kids were curious about what we were doing, how these mm -hmm. kids were curious about uh, how to actually get out of situations. I remember uh, when we when you took us out for lunch. I don't know if you remember this story. You took us out for lunch, and uh, we were two streets away from Tremont Street. I think it was Tremont in South Boston on on we a gang the street. South End. Yeah, yeah, the South End. Yeah. And it was on a gang street and, and you were like, let's get some lunch. And you, everybody knows me on this show. I'm like, well, let's get something good for lunch. Right. <laughs> and so we ended up just walking over two blocks and you brought the kids that we were interviewing with us. And we crossed over to the, to the street and there was two places side by side. There was like a sub shop, like a pizza place. And next to it was a seafood place. And I remember going in and ordering stuff in the seafood place and a lot of the kids wanted to go in and get pizza. So you, you um, paid for both of us. And I remember coming out afterwards 
and there was a little kid that we were with and he was standing in the window and he was like, what's that? And he kept pointing at the window. He's like, what is that? And it was, it was a lobster. It was mm. a lobster in a tank. And he's like, what is this thing? And I'm like, this kid lives two blocks from this tank. Yeah, yeah. He literally lives two blocks and it's like, do you want some? Have you ever had it before? Have you ever tried this before? Have you ever, do you, do you have an understanding that uh, if you want to make a cheap meal from yourself, you don't have to go to McDonald's. You don't have to go to the sub shop. You can literally buy these. Oh, but you don't have that taught to you. You don't have that yeah. um, introduced to you. So just those little yeah. moments there was like, oh, fuck. You yeah. know what I mean? And it, yeah, it, you, have, you understand right in that moment. It breaks your heart, but you, you, get, you, you have a, an understanding of you know what this young person's experience might be and then you have a greater understanding of how fear works yeah. and you have a greater understanding of how control works and you have a greater understanding at how uh how lazy it can be to just sort of regurgitate the same shit that you hear from anybody else that's a bad fucking neighborhood why is that a bad neighborhood? Have you ever been in that neighborhood? Have yeah. you driven through that neighborhood? Or is someone telling you that that's a bad neighborhood? And why are they telling you that it's a bad neighborhood? Right. Is this something that they saw in the news? Or did they have a personal experience? Do they even know somebody that had a personal experience with that? Right. Yeah, usually they get it from the news. It's crazy, man. Yeah. It's crazy. And then you have to ask yourself, are they saying those things to put up condominiums. <laughs> yeah, well, in the new film, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on with the film we're working on, on uh, black barbershops and, um, and hair salons and what these establishments mean to the black community over decades. And you see, you know, you see a lot of gentrification happening, a lot of displacement of people mm -hmm. from those neighborhoods to accommodate those, you know, condominiums and so on. And uh, you wonder, you know, what's going to happen. Even, even in this situation with, with COVID, you wonder what's going to happen to those small businesses like the, you know, the barbershops and the salons. Um, yeah, that's totally. when you begin to understand, uh, you know, the economics of it and the reality of those economics and who it benefits. Totally. And then, you know, you can look at it both sides too, like these poor businesses that are raided and looted and destroyed yeah. during this whole thing too. Yeah. It's like, fuck, talk about kicking someone when they're down at that point. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's all over the place. It's pretty rough. So really, look, I, I really appreciate you being on the show today. And sure. I want to say again, like I really appreciate the opportunity that you gave me to um, further my life and help me develop the empathetic skills that, that I use now every day. And I use them whether I'm doing my work or I use them when I'm in arguments. Um, and I try to take a blend, a healthy little smoothie blend of that stuff plus my cynicism when I'm dealing with, you know, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, Mike, it's, you know, it's been, it's always a treat to speak with you, but it, it's, it's great uh, having done these projects with you. And um, just because you've had me on, 
on your show doesn't mean I give up those blackmail pictures of you because you still need to continue to work with me. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but there's nobody, you know, that I would rather go into battle with because I know once we go into this together, we always come out with inc incredible stuff. And um, it's just a pleasure to work with you. And we have so many other members of the team that comes mm -hmm. into the fray, you know, uh, that works with us and, you know, as I said, it's about trust. So I don't have to worry about, you know, I just concentrate on, you know, what we're doing in terms of the interview and, and the, what we're doing and not worry about, you know, how things are being captured or the audio because we have Mike there or Tony there and mm -hmm. just complete control. So there's nothing like it for somebody like myself uh, who, who, you know, making a documentary and trying to keep focused on the folks in front of us that we're interviewing to, to feel like I have, a, you know, a, somebody like you and the rest of our team uh, that will make sure everything else gets taken care of. It's, it's, it's nice. And it, we've talked about on the show in the past that it, for me, I've learned that it isn't just about the end goal. It's not just about the projects. It's about the journey and it's about, um, the experience and the process and the process on, on, your film specifically, the process on your projects, and I know um, our buddy Tony would feel the same way, uh, have been incredibly uh, eye-opening and um, enlightening um, for the human experience. And I know that we're just sitting here congratulating each other, but no. I, <laughs> I, I want to make sure that the audience understands how powerful actual human contact is unfiltered human contact is and if you honestly don't know what to do if you honestly are in this period of time and you're like i don't know how to help i don't know what's going on then talk to people and put yourself unfortunately we're in covid time but apparently that doesn't matter to hundreds of people anyways um put yourself in a situation and if you are protesting talk to people, communicate with people. I've seen powerful imagery. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it online, Rudy, but of um, young black men that uh, go up to police officers and shake their hands and hug them and, and tell them that, and try to start a communication between yeah, the police officers. Yeah, no, I've officer. seen it. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And on both sides, you can see. You can hear the, 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 the ravaged and the hurt and the destroyed on the protester side going, how can you do this and everything that they've done? And it's a powerful moment where the kid's like, has this man killed anybody? Like, look past his badge. Empathize and understand who this person is. Understand how the system works that he has to navigate and work within himself. And understand that there are people that do good. Um, and let's let's pick out the black weeds let's pick yeah. out the dark and i'm using the like pick no, no, out. But let, yeah but let's let's look for connection let's let's look for commonality yep. and then i think once we're able to attain that then we can have those real conversations right and i think i think that the true uh for, for whatever i fucking know but i think that the the true cleanup that happens is going to be an unsexy process 
It's going to be something that is very sort of systematic and it's going to be something that isn't making headlines. It's going to be something that isn't uh, making, getting you likes on Instagram. It's, it's going to be as simple as filling out a census report. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Yeah. And yeah, as we said, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be dramatic in a lot of cases, but once we admit to what, is actually happening in this country and recognize it for what it is, then we can begin to break down all those barriers. And I think that's the key. The only way to begin is we talked about empathy, but that only comes with people being able to relate and to have connections and to see how our lives are so much similar than different. Once we do that, then everything else, my hope is that this is a, a critical time, a pivotal time, and maybe this will be the time that we can actually uh, begin to uh, do something about what has been perpetrated here. And we have to have an open mind. Once you have an open mind and you're inquisitive uh, to go beyond what you just see on the surface in the media, I think we can get there. Okay, so that was today's episode. Um, I'm happy to have been able to get Rudy on the show. Uh, and I'm the, the thing that I wanted to do with this episode and the thing that I love that we do is just start a conversation, right? Because I sure as fuck don't have the answers for these things. I'm not even qualified to have the answers for these things. And the only thing that I can do as a human sort of dealing with this anxiety and dealing with this consistent stress that's coming at us is talk to people. Um, and I hope that you guys have learned a little bit something. Maybe you've never had the opportunity to get the kind of exposure that Rudy has all the time. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to talk with him on that. And honestly, just communicate with folks and have conversations and talk to people about not only what's happening socially, not only what's happening with Black Lives Matters, but also talk with people on how they're handling stress and how they're handling everything. It's no accident that this has blown up as big as it has, and it should, but there's no accident that it has blown up this huge because we're all confronting depression right now, we're all confronting stress, and we all feel like we don't have a grasp on our fucking lives. Okay, so let's examine that and talk about that. And if you're with somebody... Talk to them. Gene and I have conversations all the time. Try to settle our nerves. And if you're not with somebody, then call somebody who can. And pick the people wisely that you talk to. Don't just call somebody that's got a can of gasoline that's going to throw it on that fire, and that anxiety fire. Call the people that actually calm you down. Call the people that are rational. Because it's really important to tackle things. If you honestly want to make change, you need to tackle these things in a calculating and rational matter. I know that Liam and I have talked about it off the show. Uh, I was incredibly moved by Killer Mike's speech that he made begging Atlanta to be rational. And I feel like he is such a strong leader for that. And I think he has done amazing things for his community for doing that. And I think he's done amazing things for humanity doing that. And I know he wouldn't want to hear that. Um, So in the meantime, um, 
show is going to continue. We have a bunch of really great episodes on the horizon. Um, maybe what we do, we didn't talk about this offline, Liam, but maybe instead of doing a COVID episode this week, we'll release the actual episode that we were going to put out on Tuesday, on Friday. And I'm talking about that on the air. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> um, but... Um, I'm very happy that I was happy that you and I had a long conversation before we did this show. And I, I just want to make it known to you guys that we were going to do this show with Rudy. It was in the, in the lineup. And I just felt like it was, I felt like hearing a conversation like we've heard today would be helpful. And I asked, like I said, I asked myself, what can we do to help? Let's have a conversation like this. Um, and I hope, like I said, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, do you have anything that you want to throw in, Liam? I do. And I want to make it very clear that this is not supposed to be aimed at us. We're simply here pointing things out. And uh, it's whenever I get, whenever I see stuff on the news, like we've seen over the past couple months and especially over the past week, I, uh, I'm thinking back to Mr. Rogers and I know a lot of people probably know this quote, but if you haven't heard this one, then it's really good because I constantly think about it. And uh, he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And I feel like that's what we've been trying to do over the past couple of weeks, not help, but find the helpers. We're just trying to find the helpers and, and show people that there are helpers out there and remind ourselves, like you're saying, looking at what killer Mike said, like that's, that's a helper right there. There are. And, and, and you know, me, if you listen to the show, you know, my generation X cynicism, uh, be cautious of where things are coming from. And I'm not talking about stupid conspiracy theories because I think conspiracy theories are just things that are manufactured by people that don't like to actually examine the fact that we <laughs> have no fucking control over what's happening right now but look at where things come from look at where posts come from and and when you repost something understand what its origin is understand where it comes from and ask yourself what is this doing realistically am i trying to make change am i trying to affect change or Am I fucking getting off on doing it? And this isn't just about Black Lives Matter. This is about COVID. This is about all of it. And I cannot stress this enough that we are addicted to the shit right now. We are addicted to these phones. We are addicted to social media. We are in it. So just be careful. And be cautious and have some foresight. That's it. And I love that statement from Mr. Rogers because I used to watch the shit out of that show when I was a kid, Liam. Hell fucking yeah, man. It's a good show. <laughs> How many of us right now are hoping that that magical train comes through the wall and we get to go through to a strange little puppet land? <laughs> right? Yeah. That would be which, fucking nice. In which all the eagles and the cats, and they're all hanging out, and they're all pumped, and they're all, they all love each other. Let's get on that little choo-choo train and go through that hole in the wall. <laughs> uh, what a good way to end this episode. 
<laughs> uh, so thank you, Liam, for being on. And thank you for doing that research, my friend. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And thank you guys for tuning in. And as always, uh, we will see you next Tuesday.